You are listening to Two Quiet Girls Talking. I'm Chris, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Jen. Hello. Hi, Jen. Hey, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing good. All right. Um, So thank you for everyone that's joining us today. If this is your first time joining us, Two Quiet Girls Talking is the show where Jen and I discuss a variety of topics and issues, including current events, politics, economics, energy policy, personal development, and social justice from a libertarian, objectivist perspective. And our mission here is to uh, bring a perspective to you that's just not heard in popular media and really not heard at all from a woman's perspective. Um, to support the show and to keep up with everything that we're doing here, please download and subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review to make it easier for others to find us. You can also like and follow us on Facebook. And if you do that, make sure to share us with your friends. And you can also listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, CastBox, or Stitcher. So today we're going to continue our conversation regarding identity politics. We have some uh, fun cases, actually not so fun cases, to take a look at from some colleges uh, here in America and also in Canada. Um, And we're also going to talk about the always controversial Milo Yiannopoulos and how he incited a group of protesters to burn down Berkeley uh, on Wednesday night. So, Jen, do you have anything you'd like to share uh, before we get started today? No, let's jump right in. Okay. So the last time we spoke, we started talking about identity politics and collectivism and why that's bad. Before we get into today's topics, Jen, do you want to give us a quick overview and refresher on on what exactly it is that we're talking about? Sure. Okay, so when we uh, are talking about identity politics, um, what we're referring to is the practice of lumping people together who share a superficial trait, um, for example, skin color, um, or gender, um, sexuality, those kind of things, um, lumping them together and assuming that all social or political policies are going to, all those people are going to share the same goals with regards to social and political policies. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a form of collectivism. you and I are really pro-individual rights. We think that that is the way that human beings thrive and flourish um, Mm -hmm. when each individual person can decide for themselves how they want to live as long as they're not violating the rights of another individual. Um, And collectivism is just really diametrically opposed to that idea. Uh, Is there anything that I missed, do you think? No, I think that's a great um, overview of what we talked about last time. And we talked about it last time in relationship to uh, Trump and his nationalism and his protectionist policies. Today we're going to talk about it more in terms of um, creating your identity around a particular political party. Um, Right. And also around, yeah, and also around it affecting 
free speech, affecting tolerance, and especially the effects that it's having on college campuses today. So to, uh, you know, go into that a little bit, of course, everyone's familiar with Milo Yiannopoulos, or if you weren't, then you definitely were after Wednesday night. Um, he is a editor of Breitbart, who is very controversial because of his points of view on things like uh, feminism is a big one. Um, he talks a lot about, he's, he is a nationalist, Right. And he's yeah. definitely been kind of lumped into that category with the alt-right, although he, he claims that he's not on the alt-right. So Yeah, he, he's definitely nationalist, but I don't think – he's been falsely called a white nationalist. I don't think Yes, yeah, he, he definitely denies being a white nationalist. He does say he is a nationalist in terms of he's proud of his country, which is a little bit confusing because he's from uh, the U.K., right? Yeah. But he's over yeah. here in America. He's kind of mm-hmm. um, excommunicated himself from the UK, and I think they kind of don't want anything to do with him either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, he's definitely adopted the United States as the country that he really wants to be in and be creating change in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he has been on this tour that he calls, and I'm quoting, I'm not saying any naughty words, uh, he's been on the Dangerous Faggot Tour, mm-hmm. and he has been going to college campuses and giving speeches, and many of these college campuses, you know, erupt in protest over his, um, his presence there and the things that he has to say, and Berkeley was the last stop on his tour, and I almost feel like he picked that on purpose because I think he knew that Berkeley in particular is just going to be a hotbed um, for the people that, you know, really are against him. And what happened on Wednesday night is he showed up at Berkeley for his event. There was a planned nonviolent protest. And during that protest, a group of about 100 to 150 uh, black block anarchists is what they call themselves, um, came to the protest and began to incite violence. Now, this is the same group of protesters that on Inauguration Day were um, creating violence, smashing up Starbucks windows, smashing up bank windows, things like that. Uh, so these, this group is not um, new <laughs> to damaging property um, to promote their political agenda. Right. Now, right. the interesting thing about this is they define themselves as anti-fascist. <laughs> so they claim that they're doing this to be anti-fascist. Mm-hmm. And so, Jen, what I did is I looked up the definition of fascism to see, you know, if they're even close to accomplishing their mission of being anti-fascist, right? And what did you find? So, So the definition of fascism is that it is a political philosophy, movement, or regime that exalts nation and often race above the individual, and that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, um, severe economic and social regimentation, 
and forcible suppression of opposition. Wow. <laughs> so these people are not fascist, they say. They claim that they're anti-fascist. That is their that's mission. a little bit of irony, wouldn't you? I would say so. A little bit of hypocrisy. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. So basically, <laughs> they are trying to silence their opposition mm-hmm. and promote this kind of group think that puts, you know, maybe not a nation, um, maybe not a race, but definitely a collective ideology above the individual. Yeah. And they're doing it through violence. Yeah. Yep, that's what we've got going on there. Yeah, the other interesting thing with these black bloc anarchists um, is that they also claim that they are using their free speech to stomp out hate speech. And let me just say there that those two things, they can't happen at the same time, okay? Hate, hate speech is protected by free speech, is it not? It, it is. Yeah. Hate speech it should not even be a thing, okay? Anything that someone says is free speech. Free speech is everything. Everything that you say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the reason that we have that, because speech does not actually harm another person, okay? It does not actually take away any of their individual rights. It doesn't take away their property. It doesn't hurt them physically. It, it doesn't keep them p- from pursuing their own happiness. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So these, protester, these protesters claim that Milo Yiannopoulos' hate speech incites of violence amongst his followers. And the, the hypocrisy and the irony in this whole story, it's just like dripping from the story, right? <laughs> yes. You know, so Milo Yiannopoulos is inciting violence, so they decide to go out and be violent, protest violently, to protest his, free, or his hate speech by exercising their free speech and claiming to be anti-fascist. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. It's ridiculous and it's crazy and it doesn't make any sense. Um, I don't know. Have you heard anything that's actually turned out to be true that Milo Yiannopoulos has incited violence himself or his followers? I, I don't think any of them have. It's all been from their protesters. Yes, yeah, I, I can't think of anything, any real proven incidences either of people that have gone out and committed violence because of something that Milo Yiannopoulos said, or even any yeah. of the people on the alt-right said. Um, you know, yeah. we have that one guy that, ooh, what's his name? It just slipped my memory. Mm-hmm. Peter, Peter. Oh, I don't know. He's the, the alt-right guy um, that got punched in the face. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Okay. So, yeah, so he, you know, yes, he's participating in disgusting, ugly speech. But Mm -hmm. the people, the same people that say that he's inciting violence, go ahead and commit violence against them and punch them in the face. Yeah. 
Yeah, so look, really strange. I mean, that's insane. A lot of these people are saying really terrible things, right? But I, I, I'm not going to go out and punch them until they start, you know, acting on those words. You know what I right. mean? Right. Right, because that's a very authoritarian way to act, uh-huh. right? And that is participating in fascism. That is basically beating someone until they submit to you. And, yes, this person is disgusting and horrible and sharing horrible things with the world, but we all have the option either to engage him in discussion or not to listen to him. And that's yes. probably going to lead to you know, much more positive change, um, much more people realizing that what he's saying is disgusting and wrong and hateful and not wanting to listen to him or give him a platform versus Mm -hmm. inciting violence and giving him that platform. Because look at all the news that Milo Yiannopoulos has created since last night. Right. It's all Um, anyone's talking about. Yes, and then there's the other problem. So it gives these these very public people a platform. It kind of creates, um, it gives them kind of a martyr type standing. People mm-hmm. really feel sorry for them and start paying attention to them and start thinking, right, they get sympathy. Right, and so and they start thinking that the people that are opposing them are just really big bullies and, you know, they become enemies of those people who are opposing him. But it also Mm -hmm. drives your everyday person underground that might sympathize with those ideas. These ideas get pushed into, you know, dark little corners um, where there are people talking about this stuff in secret, you know, because they're afraid to bring these things to the light of day. (laughs) <laughs> these these people are in secret, right? And so mm-hmm. they're talking to each other about it. It becomes an echo chamber. Nobody is around that can hear them speak that's, that might be able to talk some sense into them. It just gets right. more and more fringe, more and more radical, and that, it's just not a good thing. It's, it's a good no. idea to have a free exchange of ideas. You know? Yeah, that's that's a great point. You're you're creating a black market for hate groups, for hate mm-hmm. speech, and right. these people then surround themselves only with those that they relate to, right? That share in their in their thoughts. They're not participating in dialogue with someone that might be able to show them a different way or a different point of view. Mm-hmm. And so this group it just festers and. They participate in, in group think, and that's often how uh, violent acts or the thought of a violent act starts to uh, be planned and come to fruition. Right. And um, so, the, okay. sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, um, you know, something that might happen driving these people underground what I'm thinking of is just various news stories that I've seen and I don't have any of them pulled up it just popped into my head but um, universities that are wanting to create spaces where no white people are allowed right Um, right or places that are saying hey if you're white you you can't speak up right so right all these yeah, so what are the, all these white people going to do? They're going to be driven underground. They're going to think that they can't say what they're thinking around other people, and then they band together, 
and you get identity politics, right? All these yeah. people are banding together. Their their identity is non-white, right? And so they're presumed to have a valid opinion on something, and white people are driven away. They get their identity group as white, and there you go. Now you have the exactly. white and the non-white against each other. And that reminds me of a story. I don't know if you heard about this, but um, Sally, Sally Boynton Brown, she's the chairwoman of the Idaho Democratic Party, and she's also a candidate for the chairmanship of the Democratic National Committee. She gave a speech at George Washington University where she actually said out loud that part of her job is to shut down white people when they try to talk. I think I did hear about that. I didn't look into it because I just rolled my eyes at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? I, I mean, yeah, she it, said that her job is to, and I'm quoting, I just pulled up the article, my job is to shut other white people down when they want to interrupt. My job is to shut other white people down when they say, oh, no, I'm not prejudiced. I'm a Democrat. I'm accepting. My job is to make sure that white people, white people get that they have privilege. <laughs> oh my gosh! It's the and, and that's that's racism right there. Oh, that's blatant racism. Absolutely. Now what? Okay, we have regrets. Can I read you a quote that I wrote down that I thought was pertinent to this subject? Yeah, of course. Okay, so. Um, and I'm sure everyone's heard this. It's Martin Luther King Jr. in his uh, I Have a Dream speech. And he says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I, I love that quote. I've always loved it. And it's probably the most famous thing he ever said. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like we've regressed so far from that. You know? Yeah. I, I mean... Oh, gosh. Yep, I think that you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's just crazy. So, yeah, judging people based on the content of their character, not the color of their skin, not where they come from, you know, not if they have some preconceived notion of privilege. You know, we're Mm -hmm. all privileged in one way or the other. None of us come from exactly the same background. Um, all of us have different talents. All of us maybe have had different legs up. All of us have had different challenges that we've had to face. And it's not very fair um, to say that because someone has a certain skin color that they have not faced the same challenge or worthy challenges as other people because of the color of their skin. And I think that if uh, Martin Luther King Jr. knew that we were um, doing that, you know, that if we were saying, if we were marginalizing uh, other people's accomplishments because of their nationality or their race, he would be definitely in disagreement with that. It would definitely go against what he was trying to accomplish. Wait, hang on, Kristen. Can we go back to that for what you were saying just a second ago? Are you telling me that people have different experiences even if they have the same skin color? Is that what you're saying? I am. Is that shocking? That's crazy talk. That's crazy. (laughs) 
I know that must be the most controversial controversial thing I've said on the show so far. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I was listening to um, Jason Stapleton today, and he mentioned mm-hmm. like if you make like I don't know what you, like thirty six thousand dollars or something a year in the yeah. United States, you're like in the top one percent of earners worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, if you want to talk about privilege, you know, anyone that is here that's making over $36,000 a year is incredibly yeah, simply privileged. being born here gives you privilege, yeah. gives you such a leg up versus being born anywhere else in the world. Because we yeah. have opportunity. We have freedom. We have liberty. Um, yeah. And a lot of countries don't. They don't have the same opportunities that we do. When you give people a rule of law and you give them a lot, well, not give them, we, we have these things. Uh, when the government is not stamping out our liberty, people do great things, become a really great country. And, you know, there's a lot of Western countries that are really, really good as well. I'm not going to say that, like, if, you, if you're born in Canada that you're going to be in the, you know, <laughs> the bottom of the world pool or anything mm-hmm. like that. No, there's plenty of well. <laughs> countries that are. <laughs> hey, I have family in Canada. <laughs> I'm just joking. I love yeah, our Canadian brothers and sisters. Yes, I do too. All right. So anyway, yeah, those people in Berkeley are crazy. Um, people in Berkeley are crazy. You know who is like just as crazy though? What? Who? People that go to Yale. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, tell me about those people. Oh, speaking of privileged. Yeah, right? those people are very marginalized, all those people at Yale. Man, they've had a hard life, haven't they? I mean, me the, what the chance that a Yale graduate could go into the world and succeed is just so small. You know, they're just marginalized people. I know they are. I know they feel, I feel really. I feel really sorry for them. <laughs> I do too. Okay, so so what are you talking about? Tell me. Uh, tell me what incident you are referring to. <laughs> sure. So what I'm talking about specifically is what I ended the show last week with. Um, mm-hmm. The event that happened at Yale with professors Nicholas and Erica Kristakis, who um were basically, they were forced to resign from the university because they spoke out against the university's policy on Halloween costumes. Mm-hmm. So to give you some background here, um, Professor Nicholas Kostaki is a master and professional professor of social and natural science at Yale, and his wife Erica works there as well. She's an associate master and also an early childhood lecturer and educator. So I bring this background up because number one, um, they're both deeply involved with the students at Yale. Um, A master at Yale is someone that's decided to live on campus and basically make themselves available to their students 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're trying to give them this immersive educational experience, right? Okay, so they must have done something really, really horrible. I mean, they had to have. The other reason that I bring it up and find it interesting is that he's a professor of social sciences. She is a lecturer in early childhood 
um, education. So both of them have a background in how children and young adults and people in general form relationships with each other and grow and develop, right? They mm -hmm. seem to have a, a really good um, amount of knowledge on that subject, especially enough to be teaching at Yale. So in Halloween of 2015, the university committee urged students not to wear racially or culturally insensitive costumes for Halloween. And Professor Erica Christakis responded to this email. And in her response, she did acknowledge the spirit of avoiding hurt and offense. But she also questioned whether university administrators should take a role in asserting social norms or if the students should have the space and freedom to shape their own social norms. And she also asserted in her email that her husband, Nicholas, felt the same, and that he, his opinion is that if you don't like a costume that someone's wearing, you should either look away or you should tell them that, they're, that you're offended by the costume and why. So he's encouraging students to talk to each other and he made, the, um, he made the statement that free speech and tolerance are the hallmarks of a free and open society. Can I jump in here for a second? <laughs> this just reminded me of something. So um, I have a toddler, obviously, and I read, um, I read books on child development and things like that. Mm -hmm. This just reminded me of um, the... the the scenario of your kid gets into a fight with another kid, you know, on the playground, mm -hmm. and the question is always, do you intervene or, or do you, like, let them try to work it out? And right. the prevailing wisdom is that as long as nobody's getting hurt, you know, let them try and work it out themselves, right? Because that's how we learn to relate to mm -hmm. each other and be polite to each other. And that just, it just jumped into my head as you were reading that. <laughs> so, so children should would... be allowed. Children should be allowed to learn to talk to each other and talk through their issues versus having an authority figure jump in and take care of it for them. Yes, as long as nobody is getting hurt, yeah, they should be allowed to work it out for themselves. Because who knows, they might actually learn something. Yeah, yeah. Well, funny thing is, is that in this case, students at Yale were outraged that Professor Christakis would say that they should talk to each other. They said, and I'm quoting, <laughs> we were told to meet the offensive parties head on without suggesting any modes or means to facilitate these discussions or to promote understanding. <laughs> so Yale students needed to be told how to talk to each other. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh I mean, obviously, these kids are not prepared to succeed in any way in the real world. They are really disadvantaged. We should start oh a gosh. charity for the kids at Yale to teach them how to function in society. Oh, my gosh. I, 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 really I, bad. I wonder where that comes from. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I mean, how how do you how does someone get to that age and 
they're so precious and get that they don't know. get into freaking Yale. Get into freaking Yale. That's what I'm wondering. How do you, how have you, I don't even know. I, I, I don't even know. Okay, so that's, I mean, so what they're upset about is that there, somebody is suggesting <laughs> that essentially they, they control their emotions, you know, talk to other mm-hmm. students. And also that maybe maybe it's all right to sometimes be offended. Right, right, right because it gives you an opportunity to open up a dialogue. Or mm-hmm. if you're so offended that you don't want to open up a dialogue, you just turn around and walk away. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Nicholas, Professor Nicholas Christakis, what happened here? So both of them were just barraged by protesters. Um, mm-hmm. I believe protesters even came to their home at some point and um, damaged their, their property. Um, and ironically enough, I mean, there seems to be a trend here. They, they claim that these Halloween costumes incited violence or promoted violence and then turned around and damaged their property. But we won't go there. So... Uh, Professor okay. Nicholas Christakis <laughs> was confronted by protesters on campus who demanded a response to the email. So being the professor that he is, being the master that he is, being a person that's supposed to be on Yale to, um, you know, kind of guide conversations, open dialogue, challenge kids intellectually, he attempted to engage these protesters in dialogue. Um, but if you watch the videos from this protest, he's trying to talk to them. He's trying to understand their outrage, and they won't talk to him. They just want him to apologize. They want him to admit uh, that what he's done is wrong, and they will not explain to, that, to him in any type of um, sound, logical way why they're so upset over Halloween costumes. Oh God! Well, it's uh, it's cultural appropriation, is it not? <laughs> apparently, apparently, but there was no dialogue around how and why it's cultural appropriation. What's wrong with it? Why appropriating yeah. other cultures is so offensive? Why it's so wrong? Why it might incite violence or trigger memories of violence from a marginalized group of people? There was no conversation about that. There was just a demand for an apology. Yeah. Yeah, so essentially what they're demanding is you uh, you bend over because you hurt my feelings, right? And mm-hmm. now we're just going to absolutely crucify you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, basically. Basically. So crazy. understandably, both of the professors ended up resigning. They both decided that it would be better to go back to their respective fields and mm-hmm. no longer teach at Yale, which is really sad for Yale because obviously they lost two um, very devoted professors who mm-hmm. really seemed to want nothing more than to engage and challenge their kids. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what is going to happen (laughs) to higher education if this continues happening? You know, where does this go? You know, that's a really really good question because it seems to me that the reason that you go to college is to learn. 
right? Mm-hmm. Not to have what you already believe to be reinforced, but mm-hmm. to hear other points of view and to learn, and to learn especially how to think, right? And how yeah. to, if you do have a certain point of view that you feel strongly about, how to defend that point of view, not mm-hmm. how to yell and scream and stomp your feet until the other person submits, how to defend your, your point of view through constructive dialogue. So you don't, and, are you saying that you don't go and bust up somebody's property if, uh, if they don't no, agree to? No, that's typically not the best way to promote understanding. Shoot. Um, but what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, not much, Kristen. You are not at Yale, okay? You're not. You at know, I'm not. School. No, I know. <clears throat> I wasn't smart enough to go to Yale. Thanks. So here's something interesting. Like when all this cultural appropriation stuff started coming out, I could kind of understand, you know, why why some costumes might be offensive to certain people, but it it seems a little bit weird to me, and um, it's been going in a very strange direction, like particularly um, there's been a lot of attacks on science fiction writers, right? For uh, they, they get mad at them for writing a character that is some kind of minority if they're not that kind of minority. Isn't that crazy? Wait, really? Wait, okay, so yeah. give me an example of this. Oh God, I don't, it just popped into my head. I don't have it, the relevant stuff up. <laughs> no, okay, so. So a science so like, fiction author might write in a, I don't know, a Mexican person, and they get upset yeah. about that? Yeah, and they're not actually Mexican, so they're uh, appropriating the culture. You know, why aren't they actually Mexican? No, like if, if a white person were to write a Mexican character. Oh, so white people are not allowed to write about other people because they don't understand the culture? Yes. I see. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that weird? So it's, it's that is like, very strange. That's very, very hard, strange it's hard to, to me. jump off onto a weird thing, you know. It's just, it jumped into my head. It's this refusal of people this refusal of the social justice warrior crowd to allow someone to get into another person's shoes, you know, via a costume or mm-hmm. imagination, you know, any kind of thing like that. And it's, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, isn't that like the best way to learn about other people and other cultures is to, is to try and, you know, kind of dive into their culture and figure out what it would be like to grow up in the world. And yes. as an author, the best expression of your, you know, what you come away with from that type of experience is to write it in a book. Yes, I would think so. So I was reading, um, I was reading, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. Mm-hmm. And I love that book. I've loved it since I think I first read it in high school. And mm-hmm. there were, so this topic has been on my mind. And um, there were a couple of sections, and I think this was written in 1969, you know, several decades ago. And Mm -hmm. um, so there's one section. She is a a poor black girl growing up in the Depression um, in a really tiny town in Arkansas. And she becomes acquainted with a woman um, named Mrs. Flowers, 
And Mrs. Flowers uh, introduces her to books, and she insists that she read them out loud. Um, mm-hmm. Maya Angelou has had a traumatic experience that has caused her to go mute for a while. So she expresses her appreciation, and um, this is a quote from I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, to be allowed, no, invited, into the private lives of strangers and to share their joys and fears was a chance to exchange the southern bitter wormwood for a cup of mead with Beowulf or a hot cup of tea and milk with Oliver Twist. Um, so that's the first quote. She's talking about how reading books um, written from different people with different backgrounds allows her uh-huh. to get into her shoes and escape her life for the moment and also understand them. And there's a yeah, second quote. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that's what books have always been to me. There's a second quote. Um, it's a, it is... Okay. Occasionally, we were taken to Chinese restaurants or Italian pizza parlors. We were introduced to Hungarian goulash and Irish stew. Through food, we learned that there were other people in the world. And that's um, later in the book when she's living in California with her mother, and she takes her out to these different restaurants. And, and it's a good experience, right? She's, she's partaking in these other people's cultures. And instead of it being cultural appropriation... It's it's a broadening experience. It, it causes you to share. It's not necessarily appropriation. It's appreciation. Yes, exactly. And I would say that these costumes, um, to, in a lot of cases, could be the same thing. Or at least, even if they were offensive, like you were saying, they could lead to a dialogue that could cause cultural appreciation. And learning, learning experience and, as well. Yes, and bringing people together, but that is not the mm-hmm. goal of identity politics. I would no. say the goal of identity politics is to put each of us in a box and separate us. You know, and that's, that's really something that I have a deep issue with because, you know, you mentioned the sharing of food and how that can be an appreciation of another person's culture. You and I are big foodies, right? And we love trying and and participating in in food and learning about culture through food. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's so cool, you know, to to be able to go somewhere and just kind of, you know, in the United States, to be able to go somewhere and really immerse yourself in someone else's culture and learn about it through, you know, something like food and sharing Mm -hmm. food throughout the history of human beings has been a way to, you know, kind of extend an olive branch to your fellow man, you know, sit down at the table and, and share food with them. Mm-hmm. So why is it that these people that are supposedly for diversity or supposedly for tolerance are trying to prevent people from participating in and learning about and appreciating other people's cultures? I don't know. Maybe why do they want to say you were born? Diversity. Yeah, why do they want to say you were born this way? So you're only mm-hmm. allowed to experience the world through this viewpoint. Yeah. And you're not allowed to know about or learn about or appreciate or say that you maybe sympathize with or empathize with someone else's experience. So I... I when I was watching that debate, um, Professor Peterson said something that I oh, think yes. applies here, and that was um, 
gosh, one of the women he was debating was talking about uh, compassion. And he came back and he said, I can't remember the exact wording of it, but he was talking about how having excessive pity for people is not good. Right. Right. And uh, compassion is not the only virtue there is. And I I thought that was really interesting too. Um, So I think these people might be, they might be operating out of excessive pity. They might think they're being compassionate by saying, oh, you can never understand the, the emotional trauma that this person has gone through because they're part of this marginalized group. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's at, at best misguided, at worst dehumanizing. They're, they're flat out saying yeah, that absolutely. those people are not capable without our assistance and without the assistance of the law bringing force to bear against everyone else, they can't cope with the world. They can't make their own lives. They can't make their own happiness. Absolutely. Anyway. And I think we brought this up in a previous episode talking about the global or the Golden Globes speech by Meryl Streep, right, uh, where she yeah. basically insinuated that a disabled man who's a journalist doesn't have a voice to speak up for himself in regards to an uh, supposedly an attack that Trump made against him or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely um, when you make a, a statement like that, you take away that person's power. You're basically saying you're, you're marginalizing that person, you know, by saying that you don't have a voice to, to speak up for yourself because you're disabled, you're discriminating against that person. You're not protecting that person. You're, you're taking away their voice. <laughs> and, and, or yeah, in and in the United States, too. Right, exactly. Yeah. Where we can say whatever the hell we want about our president and not worry about our safety. We definitely yes. all have voices, right? Yes. So let's, yes, you brought up uh, Jordan Peterson. Let's talk about that case as well. Um, because that's a really interesting one. And you mentioned that debate that he participated in. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what I'll do is I'll post a link to that debate as part of the show notes on Blog Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. So if anyone wants to listen to it, and I definitely would encourage that they would, would you encourage the same thing? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I would definitely encourage that anyone listening to this episode listen to that debate. I think it's, it's very interesting what happened there. Um, but Jordan Peterson is actually not an American professor. He does teach at the University of Toronto. And so we're going to Canada for a minute here. Um, In September of 2015, he released a video series attacking political correctness in a campus culture in which he believes social justice warrior, radical political activists run rampant. So his frustrations came out of this bill um, that the Canadian Parliament was seeking to pass called Bill C-16, And what Bill C-16 did is it amended the Canadian Human Rights Act to add gender identity and expression to the list of prohibited grounds of discrimination. It also amended the criminal code to extend protection against hate propaganda set out in that act to any section of the public that is distinguished by gender identity or expression and to clearly set out that set out that evidence that an offense 
was motivated by bias, prejudice, or hate based on gender identity or expression constitutes an aggravating circumstance. So it's basically it makes it a hate crime, right? Yes, hmm. it makes it, it – did they say it like if you refuse to use someone's preferred gender pronoun, that constitutes That harassment. could be – yeah, that could be a hate speech or a hate crime, and if you perpetuate violence against them while not using their preferred pronoun – you're participating in, in a hate crime. Yeah. Um, so his main concern was that, number one, he was asked to use these alternative pronouns uh, by trans students and staff, and he didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And he was concerned that if he didn't, he would either lose his job or be fined or face some kind of penalty. Mm-hmm. So he made this video series, and his students, of course, found out about it and began to protest him. Um, and he participated in this free speech rally where basically he was drowned out. Um, he, the lock of his door was glued shut. He was told that if he went against the Ontario Human Rights Code, he could run afoul of his faculty responsibilities by refusing to use the protons pronouns when requested, mm-hmm. and he has, or he claims he's been studying authoritarianism for 40 years now, and he mm-hmm. believes that this attempt to control the ideology and linguistics is the first step towards authoritarianism, mm-hmm. and he refuses to use what he calls made-up words. Yep, that sounds, that sounds right. Yeah. So the kind of nice thing is that the university did allow him to participate in a debate Mm -hmm. uh, with two other women that were members of the faculty there. Mm -hmm. No, no, they weren't weren't members of the faculty at University of Toronto, were they? um, I believe one was. One came from somewhere else, but she was part of the university. I think it was just maybe a different branch of the university. Okay. You know how we have, like, UT and Austin and then um, in different cities as well. I think that was the case of her where she came from somewhere else in in Canada. Yeah, Yeah, I'm looking at it uh, right now. This is one of them. Yes. Brenda Kaufman, the Director of Sexual Diversity Studies at the university. So I take that to mean University of Toronto. And then Dr. Mary Bryson, who's from British Columbia. Okay, sorry about that. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. No problem. Thanks for checking on that. Um, So during the debate, he basically the two women that he was debating against had the attitude going into that the debate that they couldn't believe that they were even there. They didn't want to be there, Um, and they couldn't believe that they were dignifying his points of view by participating in a debate. Mm -hmm. Um, So. He was compared to um, another case where this man was was using racial slurs and participated in a debate as well. And he said that there's no analogy to using racial slurs at all. He's not talking about being, you know, using racial slurs. He's talking about compelled speech. So... He says that the difference between the two is that the difference is between saying something you can't say 
and mm-hmm. saying that there's things that you have to say. Yeah, that, that's a huge difference. I would say you, you can't, well, I guess you can in Canada, <laughs> but you can't, you can't say you have to refer to me in a certain way, right? Right, yeah, you can't. And the women that he was debating about against said that it was a form of respect. Mm-hmm. And he came back with a pretty good response to that, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that, you know, you can't demand for me to respect you. Respect is earned. Yes. Yes, and he also pointed out that a pronoun is not indicative of respect. It's just right. a classification, Right, and so he, one of the things he was really strenuously objecting to is not only that it's compelled speech, but also that this um, this opinion, um, which is not by any means settled by science, it's it's kind of it seems almost like a new debate uh, on mm-hmm. gender pronouns and so on, um, is now enshrined in law. Right. So, it's it's far from settled and yet it's it's law. Well, you can be fined if you if you don't do this. And that was another thing. The women were acting like it was no big deal. You could be fined. And one of them even mentioned like in, in such a blase way, like if you don't have the money then your assets will be seized. If that's not the total amount yeah, of time, like your wages will it's be charged. No, like, oh, that's so big deal. <laughs> yeah, it's not a deal yeah. for the government to come after you and seize your assets and garnish your wages. It's okay, not a big deal. You're not in jail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which is crazy. So, so we hadn't discussed this beforehand, but one thread that I'm noticing through all of these is absolute disrespect for property rights. Right. Yeah, and that's I a big just, one. I know that that is not, that is not necessarily <laughs> super related to identity politics, but I just wanted to make a little note. You know, I think that is an interesting connection that all of these things have in common is just no, no, um, gosh, no hesitation to damage someone else's property or, or seize their property whatsoever just go right ahead Mm -hmm. it's just a natural consequence and by golly they should they should deal with it well they said something mean and so they're allowed to have their property destroyed because of that so so Kristen so these women are pointing out like it's not such a big deal just to call someone what they wanted so so shouldn't he just capitulate you know just just say what it is that they want him to say and it's no big deal? What do you think? Well, that's interesting that you point that out because that was the next point that I wanted to make. So the women that were there were talking about, um, you know, gender identity and expression being a social construct and how that relates to what he was arguing for, which is freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. And the woman said that freedom of speech is also a social construct and only has been a part of our culture since the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so if you're going to argue that gender identity is just a social contract or social construct, then freedom of speech is as well. Um, so this is what 
he responded to that with. And I think this is a very powerful statement. Um, and this also definitely relates to the Christakis and also to Milo Yiannopoulos, right? Mm -hmm. So he said, people get stronger if they voluntarily expose themselves to things they are scared of and are disgusted by. And keep in mind that he's a psychology, he, his background is in psychology. Right. Um, hallmark of clinic, clinical psychology and a hallmark of human adaptation. You have to confront what you don't understand and then master them. Freedom of speech is not just another value. It's not another principle. It's the method by which we keep our psyches and our communities organized. Yeah, so uh, you're asking, should he be compelled to, um, part, you know, to participate in, in using words that he believes are made up? You know, he has the freedom of speech not to participate in that. And it's very important that we protect that freedom. Yes. Yeah, I think you're right. Oh, yeah, and not just from a um, – and it's not just important to protect that from a, you know, community governmental organization, you know, the Constitution or a rights point of view, but he's arguing also from a psychological point of view. It's very important that we protect that. And also that so, we, we are exposed to things that make us uncomfortable. Yes. So it, it is necessary – for humans to thrive, both just in our own minds, like he's pointing out on a psychological level, um, mm -hmm. to, to have free speech, and it's also necessary for our civil, civilizations to thrive. Get all exactly. of the ideas out there so you can pick and choose, you know, refine, I think that's crucial. Yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> yeah. You know what else was really bothering me about what they were talking about? I think it was just one of them. Which one was it? Cosman, I believe, the lawyer. Mm -hmm. She kept talking about how um, the, that we have these human rights, right? And this is a little bit different in Canada. Their constitution is not the same as ours. But she's talking about our human rights are subject to reasonable limitations. And that drives me up the wall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have rights, and that's that. You have that right. There is no reasonable limitation. The reasonable limitation would be when you're violating someone else's right. And that's, right. It. that's the only limitation that you should have. That is how mm -hmm. we thrive. That, that's how we function. That's how we build great societies. Uh, it makes me crazy. Exactly. Just exactly. a little bit of trimming here so you don't hurt someone's feelings and just, you know, lop a little bit off right here. You know, it's – anyway. Yeah, there. no, that's a great point. That's a really great point. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well, we're running a little bit low on time. Do you want to go into the last case real quick? Uh, sure, yeah. That one is Anthony Esselin? Yes. Okay. So this one, it's, it's a little bit of a shorter case, um, mm -hmm. but I found it really interesting because, um, well, well, I'll just talk about it. Um, so Professor Anthony Esselin, he is a professor at Providence College, 
which is a Catholic college in Rhode Island. And he is a Catholic professor. Um, So I'm not too sure how many of our listeners will be familiar with how Catholic universities work. Um, But, you know, a Catholic university, usually there's people from all different backgrounds. I attended a Catholic university, and I'm not Catholic. uh, But there were definitely, you know, there's definitely a – a conversation that's constantly happening around the Catholic faith, and there's definitely a, a promotion of Catholic values, and you kind of know that going into it, right? There's a big church on campus that people go to and things like that. Um, so it's not uncommon to encounter a professor that is vocally Catholic. And you'll also mm-hmm. encounter professors from other backgrounds as well. I think I had, um, I had a professor that was actually from the Middle East, um, you know, I had Jewish professors. I had professors from all over. It was definitely a very diverse experience there. So you're um, saying they don't so, discriminate? <laughs> no, no, they welcome people from all different backgrounds at Catholic universities. It's not just Catholics that go there. Um, so Professor Anthony Esselin, he writes for a, um, a organization called Crisis Magazine. Mm-hmm. And he saw the diversity activism that was happening on his campus. And he felt like the activities that were taking place were directly unrelated to promoting diversity. Mm -hmm. And he wrote two articles about this. Um, And one of the articles he said um, that to him, diversity means that, you know, as a professor, a youth, from Nigeria or Morocco should be welcomed with genuine friendship and openness to what he has experienced of the world beyond our American horizons. He is grateful for students to whom he can ask, how do you say our father who are in heaven in their language of origin? What's it like to live in Lagos? And then meanwhile, Professor Anthony Esselin has three millennia of poetry, art, philosophy, theology, and history to teach. And if Mm -hmm. his students are willing to learn, then he's gladly at their service. Mm -hmm. Now, the students on campus took this, and they felt that they were being attacked by Professor Anthony Esplin, and that he was condemning them, and that he was attacking them with his words. <laughs> How is that an attack? That seems pretty reasonable to me. Well, I don't know. So let's, let's look at the definition of tolerance and diversity, right? Okay. To better understand this issue and to make sure that what he said is actually tolerant and okay. actually diverse, you know, promoting diversity. Okay. So according to Merriam-Webster, Diversity is the condition of having or being composed of differing elements, variety, especially the inclusion of different types of people, as the people of different races or cultures, in a group or organization. And tolerance is the willingness to accept feelings, habits, or beliefs that are different from your own, and the ability to accept, experience, or survive something harmful or unpleasant. Okay. Now, bearing those definitions in mind was Professor Anthony Esselin uh, 
not promoting diversity by what he said in his article? I don't think so. It sounds like he's being pretty welcoming of different kinds of people. Um, Was he being tolerant? Yeah, uh, yeah, he sounds like he's being pretty tolerant. Now, let's flip that. Were were the students that protested his articles, were they being tolerant? (laughs) Well, not of his point of view, no. No. Were they, you know, promoting diversity? Were they welcoming other points of view? Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at his article right now, and he points out that, uh, that he's teaching from a ton of different cultures because he's teaching Western civilization, right? And uh, yes. let's see. And I think I'm drawing also from his other article and from the podcast that we listened to, his interview, um, he teaches everything from from Hebrew society to the Italian Renaissance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really really diverse. Yeah, um, he's a professor of English at Providence College, and he's also a translator of classic works. Yeah, so yeah, all all of that sounds like a great deal of diversity. Um, a whole lot of different stuff going on there. I, I and he's can't drawing even from all kinds problems. of different cultures in yes. his teaching and in his writing. Mm-hmm. And he has a deep appreciation of that, and that's pretty obvious if you – he was on the Tom Woods show um, mm-hmm. as, well as, um, uh, as well as Jordan Peterson was on the Tom Woods show, so those are really good shows to listen to. Um, but you can just – I mean, when you listen to him talk, it is obvious how much passion he has for what he teaches mm-hmm. and how much appreciation he has for history. He says, yes, it does. <laughs> it's very apparent. Um, he says uh, regarding, like, if he, if he is talking about, like, we're going to, we're going to study ancient Greece. They roll mm-hmm. their eyes, he says. Uh, same old, same old. That same old array of wildly diverse cultures. What they want instead is a variety of views regarding current events, or rather an institutional sanction for their own views regarding current mm-hmm. events, insofar as those views have to do with race, sex, ethnicity, creed, and so forth. Yeah, and he mentioned really... Voltaire as well as very popular, and he. He was definitely poo-pooing Voltaire, which was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny, too. <laughs> so, yeah, what he's saying here is they, they're not – they're saying that they want diversity, but they don't actually. What, mm-hmm. what they actually want is sameness. They want, they want things to be looked at only from their point of view, which they think they already – no, they're coming to college and they want to teach the professor right. <laughs> about diversity and tolerance. This, this guy who has a huge breadth of knowledge of history and art and literature and, and everything you could imagine, and, this, and it's regarding Western civilization, which engulfs so, so much. Mm-hmm. And yet he's the ignorant one. I, I just can't wrap my head around that. And by the way, his course right. sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? It sounds super interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, his um, his course sounds awesome. He wrote a book um, called that I want to read. What's it called? Um, he's actually written a couple of books that that I really want to read, but there was one that was pretty funny. Um, let's see. <laughs> this one, Ten ways to destroy the imagination of your child. <laughs> oh, that sounds good. I need to get that. That sounds like I could add it to my parenting arsenal. <laughs> yes, but but this is the one that I wanted to read. It's uh, on Dante's Purgatory, a study of part two of the Divine Comedy. Uh, it okay. sounds very very interesting. But he has a, a huge library of books that books that he's written. Mm-hmm. Um, that all sound very, very good, especially if you have an interest in, in English literature. Oh, man. I've got to check that so, out. I, I really do. Yeah. Oh, and the politically <clears throat> incorrect guide to Western civilization. That sounds pretty good as well. Um, so, Jenny, in wrapping up here, um, what are your final thoughts? What can we take away from what we've learned today in, in regards to identity politics, and, and why is it dangerous? Okay, so um, if I were going to say anything, and I would probably say the same thing on every single show, um, individual rights, y'all, okay? Uh, Respect people as individuals. uh, Don't try to lump everyone into a box. I mean, I feel silly saying that, you know. Mm -hmm. It's, I feel very silly saying that. It's like what we learned in elementary school. Don't judge a book by its cover or people by the color of their skin or whatever, but it's so true, you know? Each person needs to be taken on their own merits, not from whatever category you think they may fit into. Right. I mean, that's what I would say. (laughs) What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the one thing that I've taken away from all of this is, you know, how dangerous is it, uh, how dangerous collectivism is? not only does it try to lump people into just one category, you know, it it tries to get us all thinking the same, doing the same, worrying about the same, having the same experience. And if you have anything other than that, your experiences are immediately dismissed. And I would, uh, with that. I said, and you're the enemy. And you're the enemy, right. So I would reinforce the, um, the beauty of diversity. I mean, really, if, if you want to um, really experience diversity, travel, experience other cultures, appreciate other cultures, immerse yourself in other cultures. Don't be afraid of other cultures or offending people by appreciating their culture because you can learn so much by sharing your experiences and by learning about other people's experiences. And it's not right to marginalize other people's experiences. Yes, and also invite intellectual diversity, right? Yeah. Seek out things that you don't know about. Seek out points of view that aren't your own. Avoid the echo chamber. Yeah, absolutely. Crucial. Absolutely. All right. Well, that was fun. So I just want to say thanks again to everyone that's joined us this week. We'll be back again in two weeks, of course. Um, You know, topic undecided as of now. um, But I'm sure we'll come up with something fun to talk about next time. If you enjoy the show, we would really appreciate it if you subscribe to us on iTunes 
and especially if you left us a five-star review because that helps other people find the show. And also share us with your friends. If you're finding this information valuable, we would love to have other people listening to the show and to grow the show. You can like us on Facebook. Um, you can also listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Stitcher, or CastBox. Um, so thanks again for everyone for joining us today. Bye. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye.